Welcome everyone to the Jackson Hole Connection, episode number six. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host, and thank you for downloading this episode and joining me today. I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to join me while I visit with worldly, widely interesting people connected to Jackson Hole. Please visit my website, thejacksonholeconnection.com, to offer feedback, provide ideas, and request to be on the show. Today, my guest is Bill Johnson. Bill is an avid fisherman, carpenter, skier, climber, surfer, sailor, and mountaineer. Just a guy who loves to live in the mountains, enjoy life, and call Jackson Hole his home. Bill first arrived in the valley in 1961 at the age of 21 from Burbank, California. He came here to climb the beautiful mountains. And today, we will learn a little bit about Bill and his story. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Bill, thanks for coming over here today to spend some time and talk and chat and visit a little bit. Good to see you. Well, it's good to see you. So in the introduction, I mentioned that you came from Burbank, California. The first time you came out here was in 1961. Could you tell us a little bit more about your travels here into Jackson, what it was, it was like uh, initially when you first started coming out here? Well, when I first came in 61, I drove through Jackson, but we drove up into the park, and we stayed in what was the original climbers camp. It was a CCC uh, government camp where they did uh, work during the depression and since that camp was uh, vacant the park service had us all go over to that camp because they knew we were going to overstay our two-week limit in the <laughs> regular campground so th- there was a group from all over the country from california colorado new york a lot of the climbing clubs and that's where we all kind of gathered and stayed before we did the climbs in the tetons Excellent. So you were here in the summer of 61 for more than two weeks, of course, and then you went back to California, and your next time here in Jackson was when? I missed the next year because I was in the National Guard, California National Guard. (laughs) But then I came back in 63, and at that time I decided I wanted to be a part of the community as well as being a climber. And what did you do to become a part of the community? I was a carpenter, and I started my career as a carpenter as a a boat builder in California, and I had my tools, but I never built a house, and I was signing on as a house carpenter. So I learned quickly because I knew how to use my tools, but I had to learn from people who knew more about carpentry, and that introduced me to the local people, the local carpenters. And that was really my real introduction to Jackson Hole. And were you able to stay here year-round at that point going forward? No. I, because of the no jobs in the wintertime, uh, or lack of jobs, the ski area hadn't been built yet. And so there was uh, no year-round employment uh, except for the people who worked in stores, which had to sell things to people year-round. Because of my California connection, I would go back to California in, in the wintertime because my love of surfing and being in, along the ocean was as, just as strong as my love for being in the mountains. And so you went back to California, and 
you met up with a friend of yours that you had known since you were about 14 years old, correct? Yes, that is correct. And who was that? That was Yvonne Chouinard. And uh, the reason we became friends is we were both interested in free diving, skin diving, uh, where you hold your breath and rather, and rather than wear a, an aqualung. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were not old enough to even drive to the ocean from Burbank. <laughs> so we would end up going with an older brother or somebody who had a car. Uh, so there was a group of us that were four or five people that were young kids would go skin diving. And that was the connection with Yvonne. And Yvonne had a love of the mountains and he grew up coming up here. And so he actually came earlier. He came up when he was only 16 years old uh, and started climbing here in the Tetons. So, and we had several other friends there in Burbank that were also climbers. So the connection was basically the ocean and the mountains. That's spectacular. Uh, sounds like quite a life to just surf, climb, and be in the outdoors as much as possible. Well, and because of our lifestyle, uh, when you're a carpenter in Jackson at that time, we only carpentry, did carpentry in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And so it, that was allowed me to be able to go back to California, where I worked for Yvonne at 21. We were making mountaineering equipment. He was starting his business where he was basically selling things out of his car. He didn't have a, a, a real business. It was just kind of earning money by making mount, mountaineering equipment. No such thing as the internet to no, sell. Not, not at all. <laughs> and what was the name of that business at that time? Oh, it was Chenard Equipment Company. Okay. And their logo was a, a diamond C, which we would stamp into the various hardware, climbing hardware uh -huh. that we would make. And did you help test some of this and create yes. some of this equipment? Well, it was it was the ideas came from the climbers. Okay. How you could make a these were actually pitons and carabiners and things that the pitons aren't used anymore because they actually destroy the rock. So now now they're using other equipment that will doesn't leave holes in the rock, doesn't destroy the rock. But uh, that part of the business was somewhat limited because Yvonne was the only one who really did the forging. So it was what he could produce and the rest of us assembled things and, and did other things other than we didn't actually do the forging. Mm -hmm. yeah, but then the, the company developed where they were, were buying other things and so the business developed and that's what took Yvonne on to two more businesses. He started, the, it was, the company was called uh, uh, the Great Pacific Ironworks, uh, but uh, it, they developed basically into Patagonia. So that's where I was going with the, the conversation. Mm -hmm. the, so, and at that point, they were selling more clothing than they were hardware. I worked from uh, 1963 to 1970, those seven years, when it was basically making hard climbing hardware, not selling uh, the clothing. That's fascinating. And from my understanding, you were recently interviewed to help document some of this so the company of Patagonia could piece together the history of how Yvonne started as well. So you are part of that historical documentation that's going to be memorialized for, for the company. Yes, it turns out that uh, the period, the early period of the 60s, there was just a small group of people working and, and there were like four or five of us. And uh, because that was a time period that was a pretty unique in the history of it's a, a small businessman, Yvonne, going from being able to make hardware uh, with his friends. And so he could live the lifestyle he wanted, go to the mountains in the summertime and come back to the ocean 
and have a business, they want to record the history of the people who were around at that time. So we're going around interviewing and talking to people who were there at that time. That's spectacular. To, to see what we remembered because, you know, it's that's a period of time. It was quite a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all agree that as time passes, our memories uh, change a little bit. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's get back to Bill Johnson. So you were going back and forth for quite some time between Jackson in the summertime, California in the wintertime. When was your first full year here in Jackson Hole when you spent a winter? Uh, it was in the late 60s. I had a, a girlfriend who actually was a cocktail waitress. And between my earnings in the summer and her earnings in the winter, I was able to stay here my first year, first winter. Uh, but there still a, was a draw to go to the ocean. So uh, it was spring break came early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I bet it did. I went to the ocean fairly soon. Well, as we all know, spring can come quite late here it can. In, in Jackson Hole. And, and then over time, you were able to acquire a lease in the Forest Service holding and construct a cabin. When, when did that take place? That, that took place in 1970, but I did not construct the cabin. I bought it from a previous owner. Oh, okay. And it turned out that in 1954, they opened that area in Black Canyon mm -hmm. to uh, recreational home sites. And the rec recreational is very important because that meant you really weren't supposed to live there year-round. Mm -hmm. It meant you were supposed to come up and recreate in the summertime, or you could come and recreate in the winter, but it was not supposed to be your only residence. Well, I ran into a little problem there in that I did try to make it year-round, and, and finally the Forest Service told me I could not do that. So I only spent two winters in my cabin, staying through the, that, the whole winter, but then after that, I would have to leave during a, a part of the winter, and I just used the connections in California and the surfing and sailing and all my interests out there to be able to go to California when I was not here in, J in Jackson or living in Black Canyon. And so this cabin, how many square feet is that cabin? Uh, it was quite small. It was, I think it was probably, I, uh, 12, it was 12 feet by 30 feet. Okay. And then I had a sleeping loft upstairs that was 12 by 12. Okay. So whatever that adds up to. And what was it like the two winters in that cabin? Well, you cut a lot of firewood, <laughs> and you can't drive to it. It's one mile off the road, off the Black Canyon, uh, well, excuse me, off the Old Pass Road, and it's the Black Canyon Road that turns off. And that one mile, we couldn't plow, so your car had to be parked out there on the, on the road, the Old Pass Road. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think you can do that nowadays, but you could back then. Mm -hmm. And um, so you would ski in and out. You had to bring all your food in. Uh, you didn't take your trash out. You saved it till you could drive. Okay. But you had to bring your food, and uh, and I worked, so I had to ski out every morning and go to work. And then, because uh, working as a carpenter, you take you take the jobs you can get. Mm -hmm. So you probably had to bring in your water because there's no water or electricity in no, these places. No, that, that's not true. There's Black Canyon Creek okay. that runs through, and in early days, we used to, to drink that water. But usually what you would do is you, you would take the water from the creek and you, and you would boil it and make coffee and stuff. Towards the end of my stay in Black Canyon, uh, I, I never drank the water, but I would use it for, for washing dishes and, and, and bathing and things that you weren't ingesting it. Okay. Why over time were you not able to drink that water anymore? 
well, Giardia became very prevalent in the valley. And uh, it's spread by animals and by people. And I did come down with Giardia, but it was from a different source. Uh, in, the, in the 70s, we started a, a Snake River kayak school. And there was Chuck Schaff from Teton Mountaineering, Sherry Guyry, that was her name then, and her married name now is Sherry Tingy. Uh, the three of us were kayakers, and we, just, we decided we were going to start a school. And uh, so I taught at the school, and I was out on the Snake River and in the Grobant, various local rivers. And I, you teach people to roll, you end up swallowing some water. And just being in, in the river and, and ha, as a uh, kayaker, I ended up swallowing some water, and I ended up getting Giardia. So I had to go through the, the test for Giardia, which is quite interesting because they give you a capsule that has a tail on it, and they tape it to your cheek, and then you swallow the capsule, and they go bottom fishing in your stomach to see what you've got in there. Oh, gosh. And you sit there for two hours, and then they pull the string out and cut it in pieces to see what's crawling around on the string. And uh, under a microscope, they can look and see what's there. And uh, that's how they can tell you what you've got. Huh. That's uh, an experience I don't want to have to go through. I never went through it again either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that you did not have to go through that again. So over time, the jobs for being a carpenter opened up year-round, and you were able to live here in Jackson year-round. Is that correct? No. No. Then, okay. again, then again, because of my living situation uh -huh. in Black Canyon, I was not allowed to stay here year-round. I had to leave some period of the year. So I always went, after that, I always went back to California. Were you not able to find any other type of housing situation here in the wintertime? Well, I didn't want a different kind of housing situation. I love Black Canyon for its isolation and, and where it is. I had animals walking by the house all the time. I mean, it it was one of those things where uh, I could sit out on the deck and the deer would walk by and not even be afraid. That's of me, uh, me or my dog, as long as the dog was laying on the deck. That's awesome. And so, I mean, it's a very special place. And That's uh, an experience that not many people... Sounds like something out of um, one of the Robert Redford movies where he was the mountain man and Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, no, this is um, more modern times when you, when you have a chainsaw and... <laughs> You don't, you know, it, it was, it, it, it was, uh, I had no running water or electricity, and, and I had an odd house. So, I mean, you're, it's primitive, mm -hmm. but it, it, you have a roof over your head. It's not like camping out, uh, although you basically are camping out in a, in a good manner, mm -hmm. living in your own house. Sounds, sounds awesome. So, what are some of the things that you saw when you first started skiing. What was skiing like when you first started skiing here in the Tetons? Well, there, there basically was backcountry skiing and downhill skiing. And the, the backcountry were using pin bindings, uh, telemark type skiing, or uh, even regular downhill skis that we would put uh, special bindings on where you could raise your heel so you could actually take a step. And, and then you could clip them in when you wanted to go downhill. And so the skiing at, at that time, there, there wasn't as many backcountry skiers uh, as there are today, obviously, because it's, it's been discovered. It's, it's, it's pristine. You're, you're not skiing a groomed slope. You're skiing deeper snow, and quite often it's powder snow that's quite deep, and then it, that's really exhilarating because you can pick a steeper slope, and because of the snow being 
powdery, it slows you down, and so it's like doing a dance in slow motion. It, it's very, it's very enjoyable once you do it. That is saying dancing in slow motion. Uh, I think that is a amazing way to describe skiing in deep powder, especially in the backcountry when you make those turns and the snow just floats up into your face. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It is a remarkable experience for sure. And the only sounds that you hear are the movement of the snow and you going, wahoo! That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Lots of wahoos when backcountry skiing. Well, also, the other thing with backcountry skiing, you could take your dog. Mm -hmm. And I had a dog that would love to jump off of cornices. I mean, that, the dog would come surfing down, porpoising down through the snow, having just a great time. Oh, that's, that had to have been a sight to see. What was that dog's name? Uh, that dog's name was Eric. Okay. He was a 100-pound golden retriever. He was a big golden. I bet he was in shape. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, living out here in Jackson, you've seen the valley change quite a bit over the years. Oh, very definitely. And what are some of the more noticeable changes that you've seen as far as how people live and move around the valley? Well, I, 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 the biggest thing, I think, is the growth of the number of people in Jackson. And uh, it, I'm not one who complains about people coming here because I was a carpenter and I built their house. It gave me an income. And the, the houses became bigger and the, the people who live here, the local people are still pretty much living the way they would like to here in Jackson. Uh, but we definitely have a, a second home group of people who don't really use their house, uh, as, uh, they use it as a second home. They come for a few weeks or months in the summertime or in the winter if they're skiers. Uh, so it's just the numbers of people, just the growth. Mm -hmm. and, and it's because Jackson has be become discovered. It's a place where people like to be and, and even drive through and, and on their way to the Tetons and Yellowstone. So the business community, the restaurants and the, and the hotels, uh, they cater to the people, and they have to hire people to run their business. So everybody, it, it's just the growth of the city. Everything just exponentially grows. Mm -hmm. and, and we are crowded now. The streets, the roads are crowded. Uh, the highways were, were not, and city streets were not built for the number of cars that are on them today. And so in, in the mornings, we make our own crowd going, or going to work. It's, it's a crowded situation. That's, yeah, well said, well said. And when you first moved here, how many roads were paved? Oh, I, they were starting to pave town. They, there were a lot of dirt roads in town. And uh, some of the roads, like the Fall Creek Road, they oiled it. They did not, it wasn't, it was a dirt road, that, but they put a lot of oil on it. So it was kind of held down. Just, and that was to keep the dust down and help keep from ruts developing from tire tracks. Hmm. And I've, I've never heard of the oiling before. Well, there, it, there's a, a seal, the, it's a way of sealing the top surface so that it locks it together, and, and it's the next step before asphalt. Okay. So it sounds like that's probably been around for quite some time. Oh, it has, yeah. yeah. And, and it has to be a graded road as well. It has to be something that's flat. And did you ever work at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort when it was first started? Yes, I did. Uh, in 1964... We built the mangy moose. I went to work for the contractor with, uh, with Denny Becker. And Denny's brother, Keith, was the foreman on the job. And he hired climbers uh, because we knew how to use ropes and carpenter climbers. And the way the mangy moose was built, it was like building a pier. 
where we set poles vertically and then tied them together. So it was like, nowadays you would call it timber frame housing or timber frame building. But if, if you looked at the structure while we were building it, it looked like we were building a pier because of the, all the vertical posts and the tied together with the horizontal pieces. And then it was filled in, those posts were filled in. And so we had to be on top of the, of the vertical log post to attach the next piece of wood. So we were tying ourselves in with climbing technique to be able to be up there doing this kind of a job. Because we didn't have boom trucks and things nowadays that they would be using to, you know, cranes that would hold things up. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first job out of the Teton Village. And then I went to the Seven Levels that was a, that was part of the ski club uh, or ski companies uh, operation. And then I went to the Sojourner Hotel and worked on the Sojourner, not on the original construction, but later when they had to have repairs. So you helped construct the, the village there? Basically, it was a, a good job because we all of a sudden we had jobs that would work into the winter. We, the job didn't end at the summertime because they wanted to get the ski area built. That had to have been a game changer for being able to live here year-round. Very much so. Very Yeah, very much so. And it also... Um, it created not just jobs, but uh, you know, what you would think a normal job working in a hotel or a restaurant. But the ski patrol, um, as they built the ski area, the ski patrolmen had a winter job, and they became carpenters in the summertime. So they'd have a summer job as a carpenter and a winter job as a ski patrolman. And that was m many of my friends that were fellow carpenters were ski patrolmen. And so I was able to ski with people who were very good skiers. And that's that part of the learning curve is that the people you're around can give you a lot of instruction and an incentive to be able to enjoy the sport you're doing. It's always nice being able to keep up with your friends. Well, you try to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I learned how to ski. I When I moved here, I, I had no idea how to ski. And some of the people that I made friends with had come from the East Coast, and he even raced in college. Mm -hmm. And they would say, okay, here's what you can do. They say, I'm going to go check on you. I would be at the bottom learning and putting into effect what they were telling me. They would lap me. They would go to the top, all the way up to the tram or the gondola, um, come down, and I'd still be on there. And they're like, okay, show me what you're doing. And it was either keep up with my friends or I wasn't going to be skiing with anybody. So I learned... Do or die. <laughs> yes, and a lot of it's muscle memory. It's if, if you see how it's supposed to be done and you imitate that and you learn how to do that, you're going to learn a lot faster And if you have to reinvent it and go out there and figure out what you're doing. So if you have good instructions by somebody who knows what they're doing, then it's much easier to, I mean, that's why ski lessons work or even climbing lessons. People get the, the basics mm -hmm. and then they can build on that. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back and talk a little bit more with Bill Johnson, and maybe we'll learn some of the uh, histories of some of the winners that Bill has experienced and what it was like rock climbing back in the 60s and 70s compared to some of the gear that people are able to use now. So we'll be right back. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit 
jhmarketplace.com. Back here at the Jackson Hole Connection with Bill Johnson. Bill is an avid mountaineer and fisherman and skier and sailor. He's been in Jackson Hole since 1963, a good friend of mine. What is one of the more memorable winters that you ever spent out here? There were several winters that were, uh, we had record snowfall and uh, buildings were collapsing. Barns were falling, caving in. I had made a trip down to Baja, California, and I got a telephone call that the roof of my cabin was about six inches lower than it was supposed to be, and the walls were angled out, and the only reason why they didn't, the cabin didn't cave in was as the walls were leaning against the snowbank that was all the way up to the eaves of the cabin, and there was equal amount of snow on top of the roof, which is six or eight feet, and it hadn't been shoveled yet. I had friends that would go up and shovel it, but they didn't hadn't shoveled, so this added snowfall meant that I, when I came back, I had a time to remodel my cabin, <laughs> to pull it back into its original shape, and that's when I went and, and built the, the sleeping loft that uh, on the second story on the cabin. But uh, th- that was one of the m- memorable experiences with the snow and, and up in Black Canyon. That had to have been a big shock to come back and see, see so much snow. Well, actually, by the time I got back, most of the snow had melted. <laughs> it was only like a four or five foot snowbank. And so it had collapsed your roof? And well, no, nothing, nothing collapsed. Okay. It just bent things out of shape. It just, ah. the, the weight of the snow pushed the roof down, and that made the walls angle out. Mm-hmm. And consequently, it, it didn't go any further. I mean, it was one of those things that was stable enough. So when I got back, I had to pull the walls back into vertical so that I could then have, I mean, to stabilize it. And, and being a carpenter, it was something you just did right away. You just fixed the cabin. Sure. Um, you had the skills to do it. <laughs> and the tools. And the friends that helped me. Oh, nice. That's one of the great things about this place is the friendships that you can create and how long you can have those. They're lifelong friends, and it's nice to be able to connect with them. And you still visit with a lot of those people that you've known for all those years. Yes, we have a really wonderful Wednesday morning uh, geezer breakfast, and there's six or seven of us will show up. And these are people, some of them I've known over 50 years, Mm -hmm. and and I I see them once a week. That's spectacular. And we can talk about the old times, because it kind of takes six or seven of us to bring back the memories. <laughs> I bet it does. So what was it like climbing in the 60s and 70s compared to some of the gear that you might see climbers using nowadays? Well, it, being a, uh, from Southern California, uh, my first climbing experiences, like four or five years before I even came to climb the Grand, uh, I climbed local areas in, in California. And uh, it's the type of climbing that, that we basically did in California was uh, cleaner, more vertical granite, where uh, like Talk Eats, California, or Yosemite Valley. And the styles that were developed there were quite different than the mountaineering styles that they used in the Tetons. And so when, you, when I came to the Tetons, uh, instead of climbing in clutter shoes, I started climbing in climbing boots. Because it was around snow, we would have to have crampons and ice axes and uh, be able to place protection 
both on the rock and the snow. So learning to climb here uh, was more mountaineering, alpine climbing. In California, the climbing that I was exposed to was basically rock climbing, where you're just gymnastic climbing a rock face. And so the two styles are very different. So my training here to climb was by being here and climbing. Did climbing here in the Tetons make you a better climber in California? Uh, no, actually, they're, they're very different. Okay. They're extreme. It, it's just like, uh, well, it's the difference between a, a downhill racer and a, a cross-country skier. They're, they're both climbing. They're both doing the same thing but as in sport, but they're entirely different. Outdoor experiences, such as the skiing, the climbing, and the, the kayaking. But the one that passion that has probably stayed with me more than all of those since I have stopped doing them, is fishing. And fly fishing is something that is also, once you become a fly fisherman, it, it's, you really enjoy the activity. When did you learn to become a fly fisherman? Uh, in California, back when I was in my teen, teenage, mm -hmm. early years. And would you, during the carpentry years here in Jackson, during the summer, would you find time to go fly fishing? Well, yes, we did. And I'll tell you, uh, working... Uh, I, I worked with very outdoor people, the, the skiers, and, the, and we would work a, a, our 40-hour week. We would do it by working four 10-hour days, and we would have then one day off for that week, and then we would not start the following week so we would till Tuesday, so we would have a four-day weekend every other week, which meant you could go off and, and go fishing in, in Montana and Idaho, run rivers, you could go take your kayak and go off and, and you could actually get away for a longer period of time. And that was because we, had, all of us were outdoor people. We wanted to go do something on our days off. If you can put in a full week and just a few days and manage it to where you can go out and still be outside, kudos to you guys for, for well, being so willing to adjust things a little bit to where you could do that. Well, it was nice that uh, the people we were working for understood that we were work, we would put a 40-hour weekend. We wouldn't build their house. We would do the job. But we would do it around where we would also be able to enjoy summer because summers are very short here in Jackson, as we all know. And so to be able to get out and do something is, is very, uh, it's a valid thing, something you really enjoy. Summer is my season. That's what I really love mm -hmm. being out here for is, right. is the summertime. Where is your... Um, your happy spot here in Jackson Hole. Fishing-wise, you know, fishermen usually don't tell their fishing favorite fishing spots, but basically it's up in, in the park. And it's an area where I, I drive down to, and then I, I walk three miles downstream and then work my way back up to where I had parked. And uh, in that area, I've, I've seen grizzly bears. I saw, uh, once I saw a grizzly bear, the elk live there, so you see the elk leaving. You see where they bed down at night and where they go for the daytime to, and in the, in the trees so they're away from the river. That kind of place is, is what I, places that are outdoors that still haven't been changed by the, the growth of the valley. During all of your years of being such an avid outdoorsman, you were involved in many activities which have a high level of risk. Were there certain sayings that you and your friends would follow, certain philosophies that you would follow to ensure that you would be as safe as possible and respect the mountains as much as possible? 
I, I think that, that, that ethics of, of the mountaineering, you appreciate the outdoors the more you're there. And, and as we're slowly losing areas, you really appreciate them. And so uh, the camaraderie or the safety of in climbing, you have a climbing partner. There's somebody on the rope with you. And you may be leading, and then he leads the next pitch. So you're actually sharing the responsibility. But even when you're not the one who is leading the climb, you're the one who is belaying and making sure the person who's leading is as safe as you can make it. And and it's the same thing with, with all the other sports, skiing and surfing and all. You, you, you're enjoying the sport, but you also are looking after yourself and your friends. Well said on the part of your not only just enjoying the sport, but you're doing it for yourself, but also you're looking out for your friends. Yes, because it's a shared experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have done a lot of solo things. That's a diff- You get a different mindset when you do a, a solo in anything, whether it's solo run down a river or, or sailing, solo sailing or, or just skiing by yourself with your dog. When you share things with your friends, it's, it's, it raises it to another level all of a sudden. You're not only enjoying what you're doing, you're enjoying what they're doing. And then 50 years later, you can talk with your friends and see who can remember it the, the, yeah, exactly. the right way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we always see it a little differently. <laughs> and, and at that point, everybody understands that some of it's right and some of it just is what it is. It is. Yeah. And, and sometimes you hate to be corrected when all of a sudden you've had something in your mind and two other friends say, no, you're wrong. I was wrong. It was that way. <laughs> it happened the other way. Well, Bill, this has been an awesome time for me to be able to talk to you and learn a little bit of what it was like living in Jackson Hole in the earlier years. Certainly not the homesteading days, but um, in the 60s and 70s, I would say life in Jackson Hole was probably not as easy as it is nowadays. If there's something that you would like to leave with the with the listeners today, what is what would that be as far as life and, and learning and, and being able to enjoy life? Well, I think that everybody appreciates and enjoys the life that they're having at the moment. And I think that young people especially have made a big difference in the Jackson Hole area in that they're carrying on the tradition of going out in the outdoors. And, and they're more appreciative of being able to go out to the outdoors as you get older, you become more sedentary. You're not you're you're remembering things you did, but there are a lot of young people and, and even young at heart people that are not, you know, actually really young. As long as they're out doing something that they really enjoy, and, and they're not hurting the environment, they're actually adding to it. And they, because they do appreciate it, and they talk about it, they tell people how much fun they had and get others involved. Well said, Bill. Everybody, get out there, enjoy some outdoors appreciate it, create memories with each other, but also remember to leave it in a better condition when you started so Mm -hmm. somebody else can come behind you and enjoy it as well. Bill, thank you. It was great to see you today. Look forward to talking again and having you back on the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's nice talking with you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout-out to my friend Luke Taylor, 
for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you helped bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?